Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on with it. Hello and welcome to episode 54 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It has been yet another bumper week for financial crime this week, so my hopes that there would be an ease down in work were short-lived. Lots of news on everything except for sanctions with a roundup of cyber attack news at the end. As usual, the links to all the principal stories in the podcast are available in the podcast description. Let's start where we always do, although I'm sure at some point I'll change this. Let's start with sanctions. It's been yet another quiet week for sanctions. The UK has amended its Russian sanctions, uh, financial sanctions list with 14 additions and one amendment in one sanctions notice earlier this week and a further four amendments later in the week. Links to those notices and the updated list can be found in the podcast description. Note that this is a whole list of sanctioned individuals in the podcast description, but if you're only interested in Russia, then it starts about halfway through the document. Two of those sanctioned by the UK were worthy of special mention by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in the UK in slightly more dramatic sanctions news. The UK has also taken coordinated action with the US against the financial fixers for Roman Abramovich and Alicia Usmanov, namely the people who are fixing it for those people are Dimitris Ionadis and Christodoulis Vasiliadis. To be fair to both of them, it does seem to be that they're only fixers for Alicia Usmanov. Certainly that's what the US seem to allege. Anyway, this is what the press release from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in the UK provides. It says that these professional enablers supported major Russian oligarchs, Roman Abramovich and Alisha Uzmanov. Ioannidis is responsible for crafting the murky offshore structures with Abramovich, which Abramovich used to hide over £760 million in assets ahead of being sanctioned following Putin's illegal invasion of Ukraine. And Vasiliades, a Cypriot lawyer, is at the centre of a web of trusts and offshore companies that link Usmanov and Sutton Place Estate. The action was, as I said, in part coordinated with the US Department of the Treasury, which also targeted Usmanov's facilitators to seek to ensure that there is nowhere globally for these individuals to go in order to secure financial services. Of particular interest, though, and might as well flag this one, in the US sanctions is the targeting of a Russian investment bank, that is, International Investment Bank, which is based in Hungary. The US has warned Hungary over its closeness to Russia following the latter's invasion of Ukraine. And links to the press releases from the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office and the US Department of the Treasury can be found in the podcast description. I will say as a rider to this, I suspect because of the person Orban is, who is the president of Hungary. I suspect that will run and run, but we'll see. We'll see. 
And finally on sanctions this week to the European Union, the EU, which has indicated that it is working on an 11th round of sanctions against Russia. The proposals, which have little in the way of detail, will continue to focus on individuals and entities rather than on countries. There has been pressure to switch focus beyond Russia and Belarus after concerns were raised by the US Department of the Treasury last year about certain countries aiding Russia in sanctions evasion. But the US, uh, sorry, the EU rather, has said that it will stick to individuals and entities, at least for now. It may start sanctioning more countries later. The EU has also announced the completion of the Wagner package of sanctions adopted on the 25th of February this year, meaning that the, quotes, Wagner Group and RIAFAN, or RIAFAN, however it's pronounced, to the list of those subject to EU restrictive measures for actions undermining or threatening the territorial integrity, sovereignty and independence of Ukraine. The Wagner Group is well known for its mercenary activity in Russia, while RIAFAN, or RIA FAN, is part of the Patriot Media Group, which is a pro-Russian government propaganda organization whose board of trustees is headed by Yevgeny Prigozhin. Prigozhin, of course, is head of the Wagner Group. Anyway, the link to that announcement can be found on the Europa website, which is in the podcast description. That's it for sanctions. I said there wasn't much. Now we'll move to fraud, where, as ever, there's a goodly amount. We'll start with the UK on fraud, where the government, in the guise of the Home Office, has announced its much-anticipated failure to prevent fraud offence. The strict liability offence, meaning that mens rea is not needed, is committed from the early information which has been released, and frankly there isn't much of it, that where an employee commits fraud which benefits the company, then liability will attach to the company. As I said, under those circumstances, the company will commit the offence unless it has in place reasonable measures designed to prevent fraudulent activity within the company. Now, as well as the announcement not being much of a surprise, the apparent alignment with the Section 7 offence of failure to prevent bribery under the Bribery Act 2010 is also not raising many eyebrows. It seems that these changes can, one would hope, build on the body of knowledge generated since the passing of the Bribery Act 2010, and it seems that they are looking, by the introduction of this offence, to implement some of the Law Commission's recommendations made in respect of corporate criminal liability in 2022. Devil will, of course, be in the detail and the extent of the guidance provided to firms on how to implement what have been described as reasonable measures. For now, we wait for more. But the links to the Home Office press release and the policy paper can be found in the podcast description. Oh, and I suppose I should mention at this point, look out tomorrow for, that is Monday, for a special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast on the failure to prevent fraud offence proposal, uh, and I'll drop that on Monday. Now, we'll end this small section on fraud news from the UK with the announcement that the UK government has released guidance on its changes in the fraud and error in the benefits system financial year 2022 to 2023 estimates. I think that's appallingly written. I'm reading it out as it was written in the guidance. Anyway, the link to it, if you're interested, is in the podcast description. To 
the US now for a good range of stories, starting with Elizabeth Holmes, remember her, the founder of Theranos, who was found guilty of defrauding investors in that blood testing company. That's what Theranos did, or apparently did. She's filed an appeal against her conviction and was this week denied release on bail while awaiting the outcome of the appeal. It's not that she is a flight risk, rather that no new evidence seems to have been provided that would have supported her release. More for all news, and the US Department of Justice has been incredibly busy this week. It's announced charges, convictions, and sentences in relation to fraud. First, three former executives of Outcome Health who defrauded a range of individuals of approximately a billion dollars. Incredible amount of money. Sentencing in that is scheduled for a later date. Secondly, a restaurateur has been sentenced for, can you guess what it is? Pandemic loan fraud, our old friend, claiming over $6 million fraudulently. And likewise, a Savannah strip club proprietor faces a lengthy prison term, at least part of which will be for using fake bank statements to support claims for COVID business relief. Finally, a former investment banker has been charged with fraud in relation to a cryptocurrency investment scheme. The unsealed indictment provides that Rushorn... Russell, if that's how it's pronounced, engaged in a scheme to defraud multiple investors by inducing them to invest with him based on false promises that, among other things, he would use their funds for cryptocurrency investments and that the investors would earn large and sometimes guaranteed returns for those investments. Russell allegedly misappropriated much of the investors' assets and used them for his personal benefit to gamble and to repay other investors. Sounds like a classic Ponzi scheme, that. Anyway, links to all three of those Department of Justice press releases can be found in the podcast description. There's an awful lot published by the Department of Justice every week. I can't go through, I can't rehearse it all, but I try and pick out the key ones and those I thought were the most interesting ones this week. For our final story, we head back to the UK with an update on an old story about fraud in academia. Uh, Essan Abdi Jalebi, a former Cambridge academic, was found guilty of fraud in 2018 for falsifying grant applications to the Department of Energy and Climate Change and Innovate UK for the purpose of funding research. Well, this week, The National Crime Agency has announced that Jalebi has repaid around a million pounds. The link to the story from the National Crime Agency website can be found in the podcast description. Right, that's it for fraud. Always a wealth of stories on fraud. Now we turn to bribery and anti-corruption, where there is a decent, a decent amount of news. Some interesting, very interesting news as well. Anyway, we start with the International Monetary Fund, which has concluded its review of the implementation of the Framework for Enhanced Engagement on Governance. The framework, which was agreed in 2018, was reviewed alongside the role of the IMF in governance issues guidance note which was issued in 1997. The review found that fund engagement with member countries on governance and corruption has been broadly systematic, candid, effective and even-handed in line with the objectives of the 2018 framework. Additionally, the papers also provide concrete proposals. They provide concrete proposals to strengthen engagement in these areas guided by macro 
criticality and core expertise of the fund. All three documents can be found in the podcast description. Staying in the US, only this time it's the US Department of Justice, a couple of pieces of bribery news. First to Puerto Rico once again. I say once again because in episode 52 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, we reported on the conviction for bribery of the former mayor of Guayanabo, which is in Puerto Rico, as I said, Ángel Pérez Otero. Well, different week, same country, same type of official, only this time it's the mayor of Humacao. Not sure whether that's pronounced correctly. I do apologise to any Spanish speakers who has pleaded guilty to bribery. Both schemes, as it happens, bear striking similarities. The second bribery case from the U.S. Department of Justice is the news of the sentencing of an individual from Georgia for bribery concerning U.S.-funded military contracts. Links to both stories can be found in the podcast description. Now, the other bribery and anti-corruption stories this week come first from Ukraine, where the Ministry of Defence has approved membership of the Public Anti-Corruption Council. Link to the press releases in the podcast description, and if you're in Google Chrome, it'll translate it to English for you if your Ukrainian is like mine a little rusty. By rusty, of course, I mean non-existent. And in Bratislava, the head of Slovakia's central bank, who also happens to be a member of the European Central Bank Committee, has been fined €100,000 following a bribery conviction. The prosecution alleged that Peter Casimir paid a bribe to the head of Slovakia's tax office for unspecified reasons. Expect more on this because there will be intense pressure internally within Slovakia and externally from the EU for Casimir to step down. He hadn't by the time I went to press on the podcast. The third story is that the Mongolian Independent Authority Against Corruption has released its 2013 national strategy to combat corruption in Mongolian public life. The strategy will go to Parliament for consideration by a standing committee. Now, that's it for bribery and anti-corruption to money laundering. The first piece of money laundering news this week is courtesy of a release from the US Department of the Treasury and its 2023 DEFI Illicit Finance Risk Assessment. DEFI is Decentralised Finance, which it proudly boasts to be the first illicit finance risk assessment conducted on decentralised finance in the world. The report highlights what many might have expected, namely that DEFI is susceptible for abuse by those who wish to launder their illicit gains. As the report provides, and this is a direct quote, Actors like the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, cybercriminals, ransomware attackers, thieves and scammers are using DEFI services to transfer and launder their illicit proceeds. They're able to exploit vulnerabilities, including the fact that many DEFI services that have anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism obligations fail to implement them. While DEFI services amount to activity covered by the US Bank Secrecy Act, a major problem stems, as the report says, from non-compliance by DEFI services with anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism and sanctions obligations. Thus, while it's not really suggesting anything new, it is suggesting that the current regime is not being applied as it ought to be applied by those operating in the sector. The study 
makes recommendations for the US government to action. First of all, by strengthening US AML, that's anti-money laundering and CFT, that's countering the financing of terrorism, regulatory supervision. Considering additional guidance for the private sector on DEFI services of AML and CFT obligations and assessing enhancement to address any AML and CFT regulatory gaps related to DEFI services. The link to the US Department of the Treasury press release and to the report itself can be found in the podcast description. Also, if you want a little more, there's an excellent summary on the website of international law firm Cooley, which I've linked in the podcast description too. Sticking with the US, the US Department of Justice has announced that the Sinaloa money laundering cartel has been dismantled following an investigation by the FBI and the US Drug Enforcement Administration, and that many further charges have been made against them. In other news, the department has also announced further payments from the US Victims of State-Sponsored Terrorism Fund, the fund, having notified eligible individuals that payments of $2.7 billion will be made. This is a quote. The fund will issue these payments to 5,361 victims of the September the 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks and certain spouses and children of the victims of those attacks. These payments will bring the total compensation paid by the fund to victims of international terrorism and their families to more than $6 billion. And finally, the department has issued a readout of US Attorney General Merrick Garland's uh, meeting with the Singaporean Attorney General Lucien Wong. All three publications from the US Department of Justice are linked in the podcast description. To the European Union now, where the European Parliament's Economic and Monetary Committee, Econ, and the Committee on Civil Liberties, Justice and Home Affairs has published its report on the proposal for a regulation of the European Parliament and of the Council establishing authority for anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism and amending regulations. The document, which was updated on Wednesday of this week, is available in the podcast description. And finally, this week on money laundering, we go to the UK, where the Solicitors Regulation Authority, which is the regulatory body for solicitors in England and Wales, has fined a firm of solicitors in Yorkshire for persistent anti-money laundering breaches. The firm, this is a grand name for a firm, sounds almost Dickensian, the firm Goad and Butcher has been fined and conditions have been imposed on its authorisation for failing to have in place since 26th of June 2017 a documented and compliant firm-wide risk assessment or compliant policies, controls and procedures contrary to the money laundering, terrorist financing and transfer of funds information on the payer regulations 2017. In other words, the money laundering regulations 2017. The decision was reached in February this year, but publication only recently made. More detailed information about the fine can be found in the section labelled This Firm's Regulatory Record, which I've linked in the podcast description. Now, to a bit of regulatory news before we do our roundup, our trawl through this week's cyber attack news. Now, we'll start. Well, the only piece of regulatory news, the principal piece of regulatory news this week comes from the UK and its action taken by one of the dual regulators in the United Kingdom, the Prudential Regulation Authority. For those who don't know, there are 
twin regulators in the United Kingdom, a prudential regulator and a conduct regulator. Prudential regulator is the prudential regulation authority. The conduct regulator is the financial conduct authority. Anyway, this decision is made under the Senior Managers and Certification Regime, the SM and CR, and it's concerned with the 2018 migration of TSB Bank PLC's corporate and customer services to a new IT system. There were no problems with the data migration element of it, but once migrated, uh, the new IT system fell short of expectations which compromised banking services. The individual with ultimate responsibility, Carlos Abarca, who is a former chief information officer of TSB Bank PLC, was fined £81,620 for breaching PRA Senior Manager Conduct Rule 2 for failure to, quote, take reasonable steps to ensure that TSB adequately managed and supervised appropriately its outsourcing arrangement in relation to its 2018 IT migration program. The resolution of the problems took almost eight months while TSB paid £32.7 million to customers who suffered a detrimental impact. This action is in addition to enforcement action taken in December 2022 against TSB Bank PLC for operational resilience failings which resulted in joint financial penalties of £48.65 million imposed by the Prudential Regulation Authority and the Financial Conduct Authority. Links to the PRA press release and the decision notice in the case against Carlos Abarca can be found in the podcast description alongside the press releases and final notices for both the PRA and the FCA in the December action taken against TSB Bank PLC. And that's it for the regulatory news. We will end this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast by doing our usual roundup of cyber attack news. And we start with news of updates to cyber attacks, which we've considered or looked at in previous weeks on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. First, Evotech, the German company, has confirmed that while systems are not yet connected, business continued at continues at all its global sites. Meanwhile, Latitude Group, the Australian finance firm, has said that it's refusing to pay the ransom demanded by the organisation which carried out the cyber attack on the company last month. The Latitude attack is interesting because it's the latest in a series of cyber attacks on Australian businesses, which may at least, I suppose, be in part responsible for the announcement this week by somebody connected to the Australian government. I don't know whether it's official government policy, but anyway, an announcement which comes from someone connected to the government that banning the payment of cyber ransoms is being considered. The issue was raised by the Cyber Security Minister, and it's unclear whether it was just a one-off statement or whether it represents government policy. Anyway, the statement was made in a tweet, so it may not be entirely official, by, as I said, the Cyber Security Minister, who is Claire O'Neill, MP. News now of cyber attacks on public services and civilian infrastructure. First, Jefferson County schools in Alabama have taken classes offline due to a cyber attack this week, so they've gone old school in their learning and teaching, almost literally old school. This week, the uh, a cyber attack on the irrigation systems of the upper in the Upper Galilee disrupted irrigation in the Jordan Valley 
and water control systems for the Galil Sewage Corporation. Now, the targeting of civilian infrastructure is something which is not unknown for cybercriminals to attempt. This attack was, of course, over Passover, a Jewish festival. There is an equal tendency for cyber attacks to target victims at times when there are national or religious holidays in the hope that victims will be less well prepared or certainly less vigilant than would typically be the case. And this seems to fall into that category. Anyway, on Thursday of this week, Hydro-Quebec, the Canadian public utility which manages the generation, transmission and distribution of electricity in the Canadian province, suffered a cyber attack. Some services were put offline, but there was no loss of data in what seems to be seems to have been a distributed denial of service attack. In a further instance of a cyber attack on infrastructure, the Canadian authorities have confirmed investigations are underway into cyber attacks on the ports of Halifax, Montreal and Quebec. Port sailings appear to have been unaffected by the attack. Now, speaking of ports and tenuous segues, the German superyacht maker Lursen has announced it's been the subject of a ransomware attack this week. Shipyard operations have been affected by the ransomware attack, but according to reports, no demand has yet been received. We'll stay with Germany for this final story, and it's that Rheinmetall, the automotive and arms manufacturer to the defence industry, has suffered a cyber attack. Little information to go on at the moment. Still early stages. This only happened on Friday. It's understood, however, that the military division of Rheinmetall is unaffected. To food outlets in the US now, where Yum, which is the umbrella corporation for brands such as KFC, Pizza Hut and Taco Bell, has confirmed to its employees that it was the victim of a cyber attack in January, something which we reported uh, something which we reported in episode 43 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. The company confirmed in letters to staff what it described as a personally identifiable uh, what, what what it described as personally identifiable information was taken and misused. A couple more stories to wind up this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast before we we let you all go away and enjoy your lives. SD Works, the Belgian HR and payroll management firm, has announced that its UK and Ireland arm had been subject to a cyber attack this week. Information is limited, but it's believed that no data has yet been compromised. The cybersecurity company, and this is quite interesting, nice interesting bit of research this, the cybersecurity company Bitfender has conducted research which identifies around 40% of Spanish companies have suffered a cyber attack in the last year, with 86% of businesses indicating that economic uncertainty had impacted their cyber defence budget for 2023. Not the sort of news anyone really wants to be hearing. Now, and finally this week, the words we've all been aching to hear. And finally this week, the Financial Stability Board, the FSB, has issued common standards for bank reporting of cyber attacks. Published in Recommendations to Achieve Greater Convergence in Cyber Incident Reporting, the FSB makes multiple recommendations around four thematic recommendations. The thematic recommendations are that first, greater thought should be put into their banks and other financial institutions' approach to cyber 
incident reporting. Secondly, focus should be placed on how supervisory activities and collaboration between authorities can help improve incident reporting. Thirdly, further engagement with industry. And fourthly and finally, improvements can focus on capability development. The link to the report is in the podcast description. Well, that is it for a really overly long episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again all being well next week. But before next week, look out for the special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, which will drop on Monday, which is on the proposed offence of failure to prevent fraud, which the government of the United Kingdom announced this week. Otherwise, I'll see you next Sunday. Look after yourselves. Enjoy your week, everyone.